This is exactly right. Case Files, an award-winning podcast, presents unforgettable true crime stories. Presented by an anonymous host, Case File delves deep into the crimes, investigations, and trials of solved and cold cases from around the world. With more than 250 episodes, the podcast has covered infamous unsolved mysteries, notorious murders, and lesser-known cases that deserve more attention. Discover why everyone from Rolling Stone to Time Magazine is calling it a must-listen experience. Follow Case File wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson. I'm a journalist who's spent the last 25 years writing about true crime. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired cold case investigator who's worked some of America's most complicated cases and solved them. Each week, I present Paul with one of history's most compelling true crimes. And I weigh in using modern forensic techniques to bring new insights to old mysteries. Together, using our individual expertise, we're examining historical true crime cases through a 21st century lens. Some are solved, and some are cold. Very cold. This is Buried Bones. Hey, Paul. Hey, Kate. You know, so where exactly are you taking me today? You end up taking me all over the place. I'm very perky because I'm really excited to go to late 1800s England. It reminds me of being in Scotland several years ago when I was taping Burke and Hare, which is season two of Tenfold More Wicked. They're not directly related, but they're reminiscent of each other. And so I remember walking the streets and, you know, exploring this incredible city of Edinburgh and really learning a lot about the history. Do you take the time to learn about the history of any of the cities that you go to? I know we've talked about sort of your dark tourism when every time I ask you, <laughs> I say, "Do you have you been to a city? And you say, oh, yeah, there were four murders there and I investigated them. Do you ever think about the history of a place when you go somewhere? Well, believe it or not, I actually do. You know, if I'm, if I'm going to a location that I've never been before, I do kind of learn up, you know, and study up on it. And, you know, like, as an example, Butte, Montana. Oh. I did a case out there for a show, but also was just fascinated, you know, with the old mines and this open pit mine that was not active, but it filled up with this toxic water. And I was like, what is going on here? <laughs> uh, so, you know, it, it's fascinating to learn about these various places. And, and for me, it's usually after I visit, unless I'm going there for a tourist aspect, you know, then I mm -hmm. want to know more ahead of time. But if I'm going there, there to work a case, and then now I see what the place is about, then oftentimes I come back and then I start going, well, what, does, what is this place about? What do you do, Paul Holes, on vacation? You travel so much. What is fun for you? Well, my travel is work-related. I, I do not have much personal vacation stuff going on. I hope that changes as time goes on, but you know, I've been, just been so busy outside of you know, the, the months that we were shut down for the pandemic that I really haven't had a chance to just get out and actually explore. 
you know, I have to do the same thing, mostly because of Tenfold More Wicked. I do so much traveling for that show. I had a conversation with my kids last week, and I said, hey, we're thinking about vacation. What do you think about taking a trip? They said, great. Where? And I said, how do you feel about Northern California? Great. What do you want to do? Do you want to go hike? What do you want to do? And I said, well, there's this case. And they both go, wah, wah. (laughs) But it just happens when you travel a lot with your work. So I completely understand Well, you know, and I take advantage if I happen to be in a location in which there is a case I'm interested in, even if it's on personal vacation, I'll go and try to swing by the location of where the case occurred. In fact, when my younger set of of kids were in their very young days, uh, took them to Disneyland, and as they're taking a nap in the hotel up by Disneyland, I drove down and visited the Golden State Killer attack locations in Orange County, mm-hmm. you know, and that's just what I do. And I think to me, at least for right now, it's a productive way to have a vacation and work at the same time. I also hate to travel. I hate leaving my family. So anytime I can incorporate them in any of my travels, it's great. Well, today I am dragging you to Liverpool, England for a wild story about two women who are up to no good. And it reminds me so much of William Burke and William Hare, which, as I said, I covered in season two of Tenfold More Wicked. You don't often have, for me, a story with Burke and Hare where it's 16 murders, so I'm averaging almost three deaths per episode for that season. It certainly makes the climaxes of each of those episodes easier, but it's a sad story, and this one is, too. I think we'll learn a lot about it, though. So let's go ahead and set the scene. So we are in late 1800s, and we are talking about two widowed sisters. One is Catherine Flanagan, and the other one is her sister, Margaret. Catherine, when this is all happening, is in her late 30s, and Margaret is in her late 50s. This all plays into, I'm always surprised when people are widowed at such an early age, but of course, we're talking about the late 1800s, and in Liverpool, it was a large city, and it was sort of two cities, and this was very much like Edinburgh when I was doing the show for Burke and Hare where you have two different cities. You have the very wealthy and you have the very poor. The theme for me that I want you to think about, which is how the environment and the diseases that are happening and the circumstances of a city's particular era and environment can really influence an investigation because that's what happens here. Okay, I'm looking at the location of Liverpool and it looks like it's right on uh, the ocean, right? I believe so, yes. Okay, so big shipping city, probably a lot of maritime uh, employees coming and going. So that influences, of course, the, the, the population that's present there. Yeah, who's coming and going is important. You're right. I get the impression it's a very transitory city at this point because you have immigrants from Ireland moving in and out, which was what was happening with Scotland during this time period also. So all of that is very important. There are these two women who come from Ireland and they arrive in England and they open up a boarding house, the two of them, with money left over from the husbands who both died. This is not some fancy, comfortable, hygienic boarding house. This is a boarding house that's more of a flop house for people who have no money, who are almost destitute. And again, this highlights the disparity between the very wealthy and the very poor in the city of Liverpool 
and it's very similar in all European cities and, of course, American cities like New York in the 1800s, where you have an incredible amount of diseases, cholera, tuberculosis, all kinds of terrible things that are passed easily, either through the water or through the air. And so lots of death. And that's what plays into this story. Lots of death. And it's easy to cover up murder, I believe, when there is a lot of potential for natural deaths around the scene. Yeah, you know, that in many ways has parallels to, you know, the last few decades with the opioid crisis in which you have, you know, a lot of overdoses, a lot of overdose deaths, and sometimes homicides are written off as being an overdose and vice versa. I actually responded out to a a body dump with a woman's body thinking it was a homicide victim. And it turns out that she had OD'd in a flop house and the person that controlled that house panicked and dumped her body, making it look like a homicide. You know, and that's something that law enforcement does deal with from time to time. How would you tell the difference in that case, though? How would you be able to determine whether or not this was somebody who was injected purposely or somebody who had OD'd accidentally? Well, if the death is from the drug, then it can become very problematic to determine. Hmm. If somebody is so out of it that another person can come up and inject them with, you know, a hot shot, something that's fatal, Mm -hmm. and then there is no signs of struggle, no signs of violence, and then they just dump the body. That's very difficult from a physical evidence standpoint, whether it be at autopsy or from the crime scene itself, to differentiate. And now Mm -hmm. it really is to the investigation and the interviews and interrogations that happen. Well, this story is not very clear-cut, as you'll find out. Let me set the scene a little bit more. There's a writer named Peter Delius, and he describes the lodging for the city's poor in the late 1800s as these really nasty, disgusting court dwellings where a lot of families are living in one or two rooms. Listen to this. One toilet, of course, with no running water, that serves the entire street. And the only water came from one solitary fountain. And I remember writing in the Burke and Hare season and in other seasons that I've done with this time period where it was safer to drink the whiskey than it was to drink the water because of all of the diseases. And so this is the kind of time we're talking about. Yeah. Thank God I live in the current era. <laughs> yeah. I'm a very hygienic, very clean person. You know, really? I, yes. I, I would never have guessed that. Of course you are. Yes, of course. You know, and I'll get dirty to, you know, do whatever work I need around the house or to go out and, and explore nature. But I like to be clean and to be in an environment like this, you know, where you're just constantly dirty and you're exposed to all these pathogens. Yep. You know, thank God I'm living today. It's terrible. So these two women are actually, the nicest thing I could say is they're brave for running a boarding house as two women in the late 1800s in an area of Liverpool that really is suffering under deep poverty, strife, exhaustion. And the sisters have been experiencing this their entire lives because they were born just before the Irish potato famine. So I don't think Catherine and Margaret have ever really felt a moment of peace. And, you know, the name of this story is The Black Widows, so we are not going to frame them as anything but killers starting now. 
But I will say that from the very beginning, it has been a rough life for both of these women. Catherine is the younger one and Margaret is the elder. So when we get into the story, I think that dynamic will be pretty interesting to unpack. They have a reputation of being rabble-rousers, I guess is the only way that I can describe them. They are described as drunkards and dubious of character. Now, the issue with that is, is some of this is the very salacious reporting of late 19th century newspapers, which are at a minimum entertaining to somebody like me to read the descriptions. But they really do sound similar to Burke and Hare's wives who were just raising hell wherever they could go. And they're controlling this boarding house. And they have, uh, Catherine has a son and a daughter there, but there were other laborers who were living there and even a teenage girl. So the house is full They are raising hell and drinking all the time, if we are to believe the newspapers. And they are really setting themselves up to cause some pretty big harm to a lot of people in this boarding house and in the city. Okay. You know, and this, you know, really does start to set up your, you know, Catherine and Margaret, straight off the bat, you've already let me know. They're suspects. They're involved in homicides. And they are running a boarding house in which... I'm imagining there probably is a fairly transient population that takes advantage of these cheaper boarding houses. And some of these uh, attendees of the boarding house may be so transient that they don't have any family or friends in the area that if they go missing, nobody's reporting them as such. Exactly. So let's talk about one of the oldest motives in time. And this is where I ask you if you have any cases that remind you of this. Catherine and Margaret, and I say this with every element of foreboding I can, become very interested in insurance and the money payout from insurance. So do you have any cases where life insurance was the motive, whether it was between a couple or family member in any way? I have one case still currently unsolved in which there is the possibility that the motive had to do with both life insurance policies as well as business loans that were forgiven in the event of a death. So, you know, fundamentally, whether it's life insurance, debt forgiveness, this is financial motive. Mm -hmm. And it really comes down to the offenders, what their skill sets are in terms of how they can benefit from committing the crime and they will rely upon what they know. Well, I will tell you that the welfare system in Liverpool, in Great Britain in the late 1800s, was very helpful to Catherine and Margaret. And here's why. Have you ever heard of something from that time period called a burial society? No, I don't believe I have. It's very interesting, and I've written about it quite a bit. So this was in the 1700s and certainly in the 1800s, and this actually does happen worldwide. There are pockets of places in the world that do this. So what you do is you become a member of this burial society, and it's a community, and the members pay about a pound a week. So that's, let's just say, a $1.50 American money, about a pound a week in dues. So they are burial clubs, insurance societies, which are basically mutual aid groups, and it helps mitigate the funeral costs by due-paying members through payouts. So if you lose a loved one, you cash out 
with this burial club and they give you money that's been pooled by everybody else. And, you know, there's a preset amount of money and you are able to pay for the expenses, which in a society that is like Liverpool in the late 1800s, where people have very little money, that seems like, well, who would be able to do that and why would you do it? if you are already desperate for money, but this is a time period when burials, religious burials, are incredibly important. So this would have been a sacrifice that a lot of people would have made. But this is insurance, and you can really commit some insurance fraud with this sort of setup, don't you think? Well, you know, I was thinking, yes, it sounds like a form of insurance in which mm-hmm. you have people pooling their their assets together, but it seems like it would be so easy to set up like a pyramid scheme. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, it is going to be rife with corruption and fraud, and limited number of individuals are probably pocketing huge amounts of money <laughs> as a result. Well, I'll tell you what I find out about this story is that there are several different levels and different people that have to say okay to this sort of fraud to make it work. You have a family member who is insured through this burial society. So, you know, if I were to insure my stepfather, he's not going to like this example, but if I were to insure my stepfather for a pound a week, he dies, I then have to get a doctor to come and say, you know, here is the cause of death. It can't be murder because I can't benefit from his murder. So the doctor says this is what he died from. I'm assuming it can't be suicide, death by suicide. But once the doctor signs off on some cause of death, which in Liverpool in the late 1800s is probably tuberculosis, cholera, dysentery, you know, there's a whole list of options. Then you go to the society, the burial club, and you have a representative who works with you and you get the money. So there are a couple of different steps that you have to go through. It's not as easy as I thought, but you're right. This is rife for corruption. Absolutely. Well, and here you have a doctor who's basically all controlling. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you you get a doctor on the take, right? And mm-hmm. you are able to then have a doctor sign a death certificate indicating the death was due to one of these qualifying diseases. And now you have an easy way to dispose of victims. Right. So there had been investigations of these burial societies and fraud happening. They were invaluable to, I would say, the majority of the people who use them, of course, because they wanted a proper Christian burial for people. So it was a small amount to pay, it seems, in order to have a nice funeral for someone, and that that was a, a big value for them. But there were, of course, rumors that the clubs were abused, and there was an investigation But this is terrible, I think, an investigation that revealed that there was a case of parents who knew that their child was terminally ill, and the parents joined as many as 20 different burial clubs. So they knew he was going to die, and then they would collect on each one of these, which was illegal, of course. That's terrible. Okay, so yeah, they're they're basically compounding their financial gain. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, then there were rumors that there were due-paying members who were committing murders to collect the funeral payout. Again, that comes back to life insurance, people who kill for life insurance. I wouldn't say it happens all the time, but of course it happens. Yes, <laughs> it, it absolutely does. You know, one of the, the prime, you know, motives for murder is for financial gain. 
Yeah. Well, let's jump into this story. This happens in 1880, December. Catherine has a 22-year-old son, John, and he has developed a sudden illness while he's living in the boarding house, and he becomes incredibly ill. We don't know a lot about his symptoms. He's 22, so he's young. And even though we're in this era where people are living in squalor, it seems odd that he would have developed a sudden illness. But of course, there's tuberculosis that go from from room to room. In Birkenhair, the boarding house that Birkenhair used was shut down many times because there was tuberculosis or cholera or something in the boarding house with one of the tenants, and it would get out. People would hear about it, and they would shutter the boarding house for a very long time, and people couldn't afford to do that. So they would lie or cover it up or something to protect the business. So in this case, you've got this 22-year-old seemingly in good health son who develops a sudden illness. And again, we come back to to, this was something that could be blamed potentially on something that was a disease, a common disease of the time, because the doctor who examined him certified his cause of death as bronchitis. Okay, which is a very you know general diagnosis, mm-hmm. and you know something like the flu is going to cause similar aspects in terms of you know, this inflammation that the doctor is saying inside the lung. Right. When we get further into the story, I'll be interested in hearing about your reaction to the bronchitis diagnosis, because I think it's a little odd. So we talk about the money. The doctor has signed off on a death certificate. And John's mother, Catherine, goes to collect the payout. And it's 71 pounds. So I hate math. (laughs) I did the conversion just for you, but I hate math. So that is worth more than 7,000 pounds today, which which is worth more than $8,000 today. To a very poor family, this would have been a big deal. And Catherine collects it. So already we're very suspicious. Yeah, you know, I know a lot of people express surprise, you know, when, when parents are involved in, you know, the killing of their offspring, of their children. But parents are the number one killer of children. Hmm. And if the parent can somehow benefit you know, from that death. It's not just because they're in a fit of rage against the child, but if there's some sort of benefit, like in this situation, financial, it happens. It's not that uncommon. Under what circumstances would you take out a life insurance policy on a child? Well, that's, you know, that's something that, of course, that is being paid attention to, is that if you have a life insurance policy that is on a child and that child dies an unexpected death and maybe under suspicious circumstances, then that life insurance policy is a red flag that investigators are going to hone in on because that is an unusual setup. Generally, life insurance policies are there in order to support the family after the primary person who's responsible for the financial income Mm -hmm. dies. Uh, And the children typically don't have that type of financial income. Mm -hmm. Uh, There may be circumstances in which, you know, there's bona fide reasons to have a life insurance policy on a child, but under the auspices of a suspicious death, and if there is a life insurance policy on a child, that's something that, of course, is going to draw the attention of law enforcement. 
I'm a little confused about what Catherine did. So this is what happened. We find out that 10 weeks prior, she had taken out policies in John's name from various insurance societies. So if I did the math, and I hate math, but if I do the math, and let's say she just goes to one society, that is 10 weeks, that's 10 pounds that she paid. Her total payout was just 71 pounds. So let's say she only goes to one other society. She's paid 20 pounds over 10 weeks, and her payout is 71 pounds. That doesn't seem like a massive payout. So maybe she's smart because that won't attract attention. It doesn't make sense to take out an insurance policy and wait one week and then kill the person, right? Well, you know, if you you see a life insurance policy that has been taken out right before the death, then yes, you know, obviously there's maybe a connection, you know, between that life insurance policy and the reason that the victim died. This concept, though, of what Catherine's doing. Yeah, I almost wonder, it's with her child, but is this a trial run, you know, where now she's learning the process. She's Mm -hmm. seeing, okay, I put 10 pounds in, I get 30 pounds out. You Mm -hmm. know, I'm tripling my investment. Well, let's say I do this over and over and over again, I can pretty quickly accumulate a level of wealth. And I think she and her sister both are clever in the way that they do some of this. But let's see what you think. So in October of 1882, so this is less than two years later. There's a big gap here. But less than two years later, Margaret marries a boarder named Thomas Higgins. He has a daughter who's eight years old named Mary. Margaret takes out a policy on Mary. And less than two months later, before the end of the year, Mary develops a sudden and intense illness, same trajectory as John's illness. She never recovers. She dies within a week of developing these symptoms, and a different doctor certified her cause of death as bronchitis. Margaret gets 22 pounds, so this is far less than what she had gotten with John, but still, you know, we're talking about a chunk of money for a stepdaughter who she only had for less than two months, essentially. Right. But it's still an investment. There's less money going in. It's a positive investment. Less money Mm -hmm. going in, more money coming out. And in addition to how much money is, is coming out of this insurance, there's also, well, how much money was being spent on this eight year old girl in terms of food, clothing, etc. Yeah. And my concern is Catherine's ability to kill her own son and Margaret's ability to kill an 8-year-old child. Well, I mean, it's horrific, you know, in order to be able to prey on these these younger, you know, the the, the son was 22, he's an adult. You know, but obviously there's that parent-child relationship. And then now an eight-year-old girl for financial gain. Mm -hmm. Uh, It really underscores almost a psychopathic type of mentality, lack of empathy, only thinking of yourself because you want to benefit from the suffering and death of of this young child. Do you think that this is something that they were just, it's like psychopathy, like they were just inherently born with this? Or could this be something that was really 
mean, I've told you the kind of environment they came from, a very difficult life for two women. And then, of course, we could say there are plenty of people who were raised in that environment and didn't turn out to be killers. But certainly their environment couldn't have helped. No, you know, and that's, it's really hard to say, you know, from afar, even with current day offenders in terms of, well, why do they do what they do? Mm-hmm. You know, is is there something innate within what they were born with that predisposed them to commit these crimes? Is it something that they were exposed to as they, they grew up? And, you know, I know, you know, my opinion right now is it's a combination of both. I, I do believe that there's some genetic predisposition plus environmental exposure that contributes to somebody turning into, you know, let's say, a, a, you know, somebody who is going to be committing violent crimes. Mm-hmm. With Margaret and Catherine, you know, for after such a long time, I know so little about them. Yeah. It's hard to say, you know, are they true psychopaths? You know, they're demonstrating uh, a selfishness, if you will that they're willing to take somebody else's life for their own financial gain. It doesn't appear, at least on the surface, that they're doing this for fantasy-motivated purposes, for sexual-motivated purposes. This appears to be purely financial. So a month after the stepdaughter Mary dies, there's a new tenant. She is 16. Her name is Maggie Jennings. And shortly after she moved in, she also died from a sudden illness. We don't have a lot of information on the exact symptoms of the first two victims who died from what the doctor said was bronchitis. I think we can make some assumptions, coughing and wheezing and, you know, all of that. Sure. But these are some very specific symptoms that we find with Maggie Jennings. She had weakness, fatigue, vomiting, and diarrhea, which is very different. So the father of Maggie, the tenant who was 16, is shocked. She had always been a strong, healthy girl, according to him. And it sounds like, according to a book called The Black Widows of Liverpool, it sounds like Catherine was often Maggie's caretaker, and Catherine denied that Maggie was experiencing vomiting and diarrhea. She said, actually, what Maggie was experiencing was more like bronchitis. Do you think that Catherine did that? Because diarrhea and vomiting would cause more suspicion and might be more attached to potential poisoning rather than bronchitis? You know, maybe. But considering the types of diseases that are going around, you know, diarrhea and vomiting would be a common symptom that people would would have. You know, so that's that's where I would be a little bit confused and in, in some ways to have, let's say at this point, three victims all dying in the same way with a vague diagnosis of bronchitis versus maybe, oh, we've got another person who died a different way. In some ways that dilutes suspicion because that mm-hmm. would probably be more in line with this person died of being exposed to a different pathogen than the first two. Well, whatever Catherine said about Maggie's death worked with the doctor because the doctor certified her cause of death as pneumonia. 
So he believed her or she was paying him off, one or the other. So I'll start to wonder whether or not these doctors were being paid off, the ones who were saying bronchitis and pneumonia, versus what it sounds like the other tenants were saying about the diarrhea and the vomiting. But we can move forward. So the sisters, of course, go and make a collection of the payment. For Maggie's death, they get less than 50 pounds, which is about 5,000 pounds today, which I would say is in the $7,000 range from the burial societies. This is a lot of money for that time period. When did Maggie die relative to the other two? So there's a two-year difference between the first and the second one. There is a several-week difference between Maggie and the stepdaughter. Sure. So for that two-year time frame, obviously the 71 pounds, they're probably eating into that stash of money just for living expenses and Mm -hmm. whatever else, you know, they're buying their alcohol and whatever else they're doing for those two years. But then now between the last two, Mm -hmm. now you start to see where they could be establishing a growing account of money. Yep. Because I doubt They are spending that money as fast as they're earning it, if it's thousands of dollars per death. Yep. I think what triggered suspicion, because there was then suspicion, is that these two deaths came so quickly. The 8-year-old and the 16-year-old, it seems like, came within weeks of each other. And I think that's when people started the rumor to probably not stay at Catherine and Margaret's boarding house because it was a home of death, it sounded like. And the sisters start backing off of any more murders for just a little while, I think, to quell suspicions. Yeah, you know, and that would make sense. You know, obviously, if they don't have boarders coming in, their victim pool starts to dry up. So Mary, who is the eight-year-old girl, her father... Thomas and Margaret are still married. He suspects nothing. And about a year after his daughter's death, Thomas agrees with Margaret that they can move out of the boarding house and they move into a cellar apartment nearby. So 45-year-old Thomas, the husband, starts suffering from fever, weakness, vomiting, diarrhea, They are killing the people closest to them. They are killing one border, but everybody else's family. And we can see he dies. He died. And this is, like, unreal to me, that they just keep killing people so close to them. Yeah, and and did Thomas have any life insurance policy on him? Doy. Of course. (laughs) That would be a waste of time. Otherwise, 100 pounds. So that's more than 10,000 pounds today, which makes sense because he is her husband. He is the breadwinner. I mean, I I don't know what justified her putting out a burial insurance policy on a border, the 16-year-old border, but she did. And I think that might have made people suspicious, but this was a big payout when Thomas died. Okay. And and the doctor ends up signing off the death certificate. And what does he indicate Thomas died of? Dysentery due to drinking bad whiskey. I didn't think there was bad whiskey, but I guess... There's bad whiskey. What do you think, Paul? Have you ever had bad whiskey? No, not poorly made whiskey, but whiskey that could kill you. What, What does that even mean? Does that mean it goes bad? What makes it bad whiskey? You know, whiskey generally is 40% alcohol. There's not very many pathogens that are going to survive in in whiskey. So I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, in terms of whiskey back then, Hmm. what could have been present or could have contributed to the ingestion of some sort of pathogen that could have led to Thomas's death. Just don't know. 
What I wonder is, what if a lot of whiskey sold at pubs then was really watered down because they were so poor? And I wonder if they had some terrible water that just had some whiskey in it. And I wonder if that's kind of what he meant. But we don't know. And then I need you to explain dysentery to me without grossing us out too much. I should have a <laughs> caveat to not be eating when we talk about these sorts of stories. Most certainly, if, if it's very, very weak in terms of the alcohol, then the possibility of some sort of microorganism proliferating, growing in there. It's just like with other foods that that we have. Now, generally, these microorganisms need to have some sort of substance that they thrive off of, like sugars, mm-hmm. you know, that they can, you know, grow and then produce their toxins. Or if they're ingested, they end up, you know, you ingest a large number of these microorganisms uh, in a food poisoning scenario. Mm-hmm. So it really just depends, you know, what was going on at the time with this whiskey. If the doctor is saying bad whiskey, then maybe this was a common thing that he was seeing that was contributing to a disease state. So Margaret, the wife, collects 10,000 pounds worth of today money. And Thomas's brother is calling bullshit on this. He says, there is no way my healthy 45-year-old brother, who did drink, but not to excess, he says, would have died. When he starts his own little investigation, Patrick, the brother, finds out that there have been several lodgers at the Flanagan Sisters boarding house that have died from several illnesses. He goes from being suspicious to being very alarmed. He goes to local insurance and burial society offices, and he finds out that Margaret has taken out several claims on Thomas's life ahead of the death. And then he goes to the doctor that certified the brother's death and shared his suspicions about foul play. This doctor seems on the up and up because together they go to the police and they say something here is wrong. So I think that Thomas's symptoms of vomiting and diarrhea were the real symptoms. And the doctor really did his best to say, okay, you're right. This is what I think it was. If we're assuming probably this is the same poison that was used on all of these people, their symptoms wouldn't be so wide as going from coughing and struggling from bronchitis to vomiting and diarrhea. I don't know, because we are still evaluating these cases under this umbrella of all these disease states. And you have diseases that are being passed frequently in these close environments uh, in which I would imagine you have a lot of people that are coughing, right? Mm -hmm. And you also have a lot of people who have diarrhea, throwing up, you know? Mm -hmm. And and so that's where for one of these victims to have this... uh, the symptoms of, of vomiting and diarrhea to raise suspicion that there is maybe purposeful infliction on these victims by Margaret and Catherine. That's where I'm confused as to, okay, I, I don't understand why the difference in symptoms would raise suspicion considering the environment in which we are working with. Yeah, you're right. I think people initially became suspicious because the two deaths were very close. And I think Patrick was very alarmed by saying, there's no way my brother, who is perfectly healthy, died of this. And I don't know why he was so certain, but he went to the police and the police said, "Okay, we will investigate. They go to Margaret's cellar apartment because, remember, she and Thomas moved out of the boarding house and moved close by. They just by happenstance walk into Thomas's wake. 
which is happening at the cellar apartment, but it's a party. The sisters are both drunk, and they're in a celebratory mood, and they're having a great time with their other drunk friends. This is, of course, with the caveat that, you know, blah, blah, 19th century newspapers are not particularly reliable, but they're having a great time, seems very alarming to the police. And as Catherine watches the police walk through the door, she bolts in her black dress. She runs. Huh. And the police turned to Margaret, the sister, and they said, I know this is awake. I know we would traditionally bury your husband quickly. That's not happening this time. We are going to do an autopsy. I'm sure that made her really upset, really mad. Yeah, well, good for law enforcement, you know, to at least now intercede and, and do something that is necessary in these types of deaths. In fact, I would imagine that these other, these prior deaths, you know, you have a doctor signing off on the death certificate. And even in this day and age, that can happen. Mm -hmm. But the coroner's always has the authority to say, oh, no, no you know, we want to take a look at this particular case. Um, so at least now with Thomas, they're going to go and take a look at what was going on with his body. And what's going on with his body is very concerning for the coroner. Let's play a little game. I've told you all these symptoms. What do you think the poison is? <laughs> well, well, Putting you on the spot. Which, you know, which symptoms can we rely upon? We've got several victims with bronchitis. And with Thomas, we've got vomiting and diarrhea. Let's vote for vomiting and diarrhea because the doctor who agreed with that and said dysentery by drinking bad whiskey, as weird as that sounds, clearly then went to the police and said something's wrong. So I think he's the only doctor we can believe at this point versus bronchitis and pneumonia. So if we're sticking with those symptoms, vomiting, diarrhea, indigestion, what does that say to you? Of course, there's a variety of poisons that potentially will result in those types of symptoms. Mm -hmm. But right now, uh, in, in terms of it, what poison that they could have been using, I don't know. <laughs> I'm very interested to see what, what you end up uh, telling me here. I bet our audience can guess the most well-known poison in the 19th century where women often used it to kill their husbands. And it was found in rough-on-rats, which was the rat poison. So that's arsenic. Okay. Arsenic all around, traces of arsenic all through his system, he had been poisoned consistently over several days. And then they investigate the cellar apartment of Margaret's, and they found traces of arsenic in the bottles that were found there on her apron that she had been wearing regularly. So they really did their due diligence. And toxicology, as bizarre as it sometimes sounds, was really developing well in the late 1800s. So this was the perfect storm of toxicology as a forensic tool working very quickly to keep up with poisoners who were able to access arsenic very easily in the mid to late 1800s. Well, you know, and, and something like arsenic, you know, because it is this element, this is where, you know, back in the late 1800s, uh, your chemists had these uh, tests mm -hmm. that could be done in order to determine whether or not arsenic was present. You know, these, these uh, microcrystal tests, for example, relative to more of your organic type poisons, 
which oftentimes you can't detect with your, your, your standard, what we call qualitative chemical analysis. Now you need more modern instrumentation in order to detect those. Well, the police were able to detect enough to say, okay, something bad has been happening here. Give us the list of the other people who have died in these sisters' lives. So they have now exhumed the bodies of Catherine's 22-year-old son, John, of Mary, the 8-year-old stepdaughter, of Margaret, and then Maggie, the 16-year-old tenant. All of the bodies were exhumed. Remember, John had officially died of bronchitis. They looked, and he had perfectly healthy lungs and a healthy heart. But he had a very large amount of arsenic in his liver, in his kidneys, in his intestines, in his spleen. And the 8-year-old also had a considerable amount of arsenic in her internal organs. Clearly, this is the same poison. And I will say, I'm confused by this, and maybe you can help me. So aside from Thomas, the second latest person to die was the 16-year-old. Her body, strangely, was a lot more decomposed than the other bodies, even though they had buried her later. It was determined that Maggie, the 16-year-old, had died from pneumonia and was likely suffering from acute disease of the lungs at the time of her death. So she did have pneumonia at the time of her death. However, it would not have been a fatal case, according to the coroner, but she also had arsenic found in her organs. So does it say anything that her body is more decomposed? Let's assume nobody here has been embalmed, of course. No, you know, there's there's so many variables as to why somebody may decompose faster than another. You know, maybe uh, some of these individuals were buried quicker. Mm-hmm. Maybe her body was left exposed at, you know, room temperature for a longer period of time than, you know, being down in a protected environment in the ground. Mm -hmm. Who knows? You know, I don't think it's anything that on the surface is suspicious, but, you know, you have to evaluate everything, you know, in terms of, okay, why is there something different here? And what does it mean? Can you explain it through, okay, circumstances or was something else done to her that may have sped up the decompositional process? Well, it seems like an airtight case here because you've got these victims who have all had arsenic in their system and a variety of symptoms, according to various doctors. It seems clear that it is some sort of like murder for insurance scheme that's happening. Margaret is arrested because she's the one caught there at Thomas's wake. Catherine's on the run, but she only lasted a few days. She had been hiding in boarding houses, and finally a landlady called authorities and recognized her because the news had gotten out and they had put a sketch out of her you know, face. And Catherine, when placed under pressure from the police, flips on her sister. Oh. Catherine said Margaret was the one who was the mastermind of all of this. Have you had family members flip on each other before? I mean, most certainly, you know, you do have family that will give up yeah. somebody, you know, because they, you know, they're going, no, we don't want to be associated with this person who did a bad thing. We don't want our lives impacted because this person did something. But here you have, you know, Catherine and Margaret are both complicit in committing these crimes. Now, you know, Catherine, it's limiting the impact of whatever criminal charges and, and sent, you know, sentencing may be coming down the pipe. Mm-hmm. You know, I am kind of curious, though, is that obviously 
you know, right now you've got all these bodies that have arsenic in it. You have mm -hmm. uh, the locations, the boarding house, the, the basement apartment that are contaminated with arsenic. But what is the route of ingestion? How is Margaret and Catherine uh, giving the, the victims the arsenic? Is this in the food? Is this in water? I think it is food or water, and I'm not sure. And maybe this can give you some more information. So Catherine's hoping for clemency. So she is giving up all sorts of information. She is blaming Margaret. And she said when asked how Margaret was poisoning the victims, listen to this. She said Margaret had a history of poisoning people by taking flypaper, which had arsenic on it, and soaking it in water. And that's how she created the solution to kill people. First of all, how would you even know what ratio of flypaper to water would be fatal with someone? Maybe she was trying this out with John. I don't know. Well, I think what's important is, is that she minimally knows that you know, doing a water extraction from this flypaper is going to extract arsenic. And now mm -hmm. she has a solution of arsenic. And of course, the more flypaper that she extracts into the same volume of water, the more concentrated this arsenic can get. I doubt if she, you know, had any type of quantitative analysis going on to say, okay, I now you know, have so much arsenic in, in solution. Yep. She just recognized possibly after John's that if, if this was the process and she knew if I extract, you know, let's say three sheets of this flypaper in this volume of water and I give this to a victim over the course of, the, of two days, it is fatal. Yeah. You know, and, and as long as I keep it at this level or higher, then I will have success in killing future victims. And I have certainly written about people who have done trial runs on animals with poisoning before. Yes, that, in fact, there is a case that I'm familiar with in which uh, a husband with his mistress decided to kill his pregnant wife. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first early attempts to do that was to use chocolate laced with cyanide. Yep. And uh, the initial batch that they made with this chocolate, they tested on a cat and the cat survived. You know, cats can handle a lot. What? I didn't know. <laughs> really? <laughs> Nine lives, right? Oh, gosh, it's, it's, Paul. <laughs> it, you know, but, but fundamentally, it's a different organism. Yeah. You know, it's a different, you know, so you can't necessarily relate what happens to the animal to the impact it's going to have on a, on a person. You know, and ultimately, because of the failure with the test on the animal, they resorted to shooting the wife who fortunately survived. But that is a, you know, something when people are inexperienced and it's like, well, is this going to work? Yeah. There is going to be that trial run. I don't know if John was the trial run, but that's the start of it. And there might have been more victims that they never knew of because Catherine has some information that the police had never heard of before. She said, did you know that Margaret's not the only one who does this in Liverpool? Hmm. She gave police the names of up to seven other victims, all women, who had been killed for burial cost insurance. And it was a network 
that they claimed of women who were killing other women to collect on the insurance policies. The police checked every name of the victims that Catherine had given them, and they all belonged to women who had died under mysterious circumstances, I'm assuming symptoms of bronchitis and dysentery and and everything else you can think of. But they really are trying to concentrate on this one case, yet intrigued, I'm sure, by the idea of a group of women who are all killing other people to collect on the money. Have you heard of this sort of network before? Or I can't even imagine you could keep that a secret if you have enough people involved. Well, you know, in some ways, this is this is organized crime. It is. This is interesting in terms of this black widow type of killer and that there's a network of these black widows I'm kind of curious is that if Catherine knows about this, then there must be some sort of, is there communication between this network, which of course now lends it into this organized capacity. Is there also a transfer of knowledge on how to do it? Not only the the financial manipulations and maybe which doctors to go to, but how to actually commit the homicides with the arsenic. The interesting thing is, is the, you know, sort of the fraud aspect in this network, uh, you know, the manipulation of this burial insurance. Mm-hmm. I find it so fascinating because I think you most definitely have to know who to go to at these burial societies who are either willing to take a payout or who, you know, are at least sympathetic or who don't ask questions. I think that that is probably the case with the doctors I think the research is that probably the doctors were sort of unknowing and they tried to trace money everywhere and they just could not, police could not make the connection between staff members of certain burial societies and particular doctors. You know, of course, everything is cash, so they're they're not going to be able to trace. I mean, it's useless. Yeah. And regardless, they were not able to make a case for anybody else. But it seems certain that this became a way that some people did collect money for murder. And so it was intriguing to hear that from Catherine, who is desperately trying to literally save her own neck because she is scared of being executed. And I wish I had a reaction from Margaret. I, we, we could have had a camera in Margaret's cell when she found out what Catherine did, you know, that she had turned on her. So Catherine was a younger sister. The police at the very end, even though Catherine has given them all of this information about this potential network of black widows and this is how my sister killed people, all of this information, it didn't matter. They didn't give her any clemency, no leniency. The trial took three days in 1884. Of course, we talk about quick trials. Actually, three days seems pretty long to me. But the jury took 40 minutes to deliberate. And of course, they were found guilty. They were hanged together just another month later. Wow. Yeah. It's a hell of a story. And hanging a woman in the late 1800s was no small deal. It was a really big deal. But I think that the city was just disgusted with what happened. And it seemed like the right thing to do, whether it was or not. But this was revolting to people that they were preying on the people closest to them or a young border, and they would have kept going had they not been caught. Yeah. And I'm wondering if the police, you know, with with Catherine flipping, did the police confront Margaret 
and say, hey, Catherine is trying to pin everything on you. What do you have to say? You know, try to play Catherine against Margaret. Did Margaret ever make any admissions to being involved in these? No, not that I know of. I think she feigned innocence the entire time. Okay. I think she denied it just as Catherine denied her own involvement. This story, it highlights the vulnerability of people living in extreme poverty and who are dependent on other people who are providing them shelter and food and something to drink and just how quickly things can turn for them. As you were talking about this case, you know, I, of course, starting in the eighth grade, you know, going through high school, et cetera, was in the kind of the Sacramento area, Mm -hmm. uh, living in a town, Vacaville. And this was when we had a case that uh, uh, occurred up in Sacramento, which uh, was Dorothea Puente. Hmm. And she was an elderly woman that ran a boarding house in Sacramento. And she was killing her boarders for their social security checks or something, uh, you know, burying the bodies, uh, I think, under the house. This is a modern day example with Puente Mm -hmm. to what Catherine and Margaret were doing. Just I think Puente was using a different means in order to kill her victims. You know, so it's still happening. Absolutely. I mean, I love Arsenic and Old Lace, which was billed as a comedy, the movie with two old, adorable old women who are killing all of these pensioners and keeping their Social Security money. And I think that with Poisoners, there is a distance. You don't have to be there when it happens. And it doesn't feel to me as so confrontational. I mean, it seems to me that it's a means to an end for them. And with these two women, to poison a teenager and a child, their stepchild, it's just incredible. And to have this vision of the two of them hanging next to each other just seems like an ending that I would have expected for late 1800s England. It does appear that over the eons, women who are involved in this type of crime generally do resort to poisoning or drugging their victims. Well, this has been a long story that has been, I think, fascinating because I love toxicology. I don't hardly understand it, but I'm getting better at it. (laughs) (laughs) But you understand it, and that's all that counts. (laughs) You know, to a point, you know, I even though I had a job title as forensic toxicologist early on, and when I first started my career with the sheriff's office, I wasn't doing toxicology per se. I was doing uh, drug analysis and alcohol analysis. I never did work in toxicology. But I did take this environmental toxicology course uh, for my degree, and it's fascinating. Environmental toxicology is, is, is a component, you know, in terms of what you're exposed to, but, you know, in terms of how toxins work in the body, it is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And most certainly, it's something that uh, can be a brutal way to die. These victims last, you know, few days of their life must have just been horrifically painful and miserable. Absolutely. Well, I'll be happy to be out of Liverpool just for a while. We'll revisit England certainly at some point, 
But this is a difficult case, and thank you for helping me guide us through it. I don't know how much guiding I did on this one. You did a good job. (laughs) So fascinating case. And as I mentioned, I've got a modern example of basically, you know, somebody who was doing what Margaret and Catherine are doing. It underscores that what was happening back in the 1800s is still happening today. We always say it's the reverberations through history. Something happens 300 years ago and we see it again and again and again. That's right. Thank you, Paul. We'll see you next week. Sounds great, Kate. Thank you. This has been an Exactly Right production. For our sources and show notes, go to exactlyrightmedia.com slash sources. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Research by Marin McClashen and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Our mixing engineer is Liana Squillacci. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. Our artwork is by Vanessa Lilac. Executive produced by Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hardstark, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow Buried Bones on Instagram and Facebook at Buried Bones Pod. Kate's most recent book, All That Is Wicked, A Gilded Age Story of Murder and the Race to Decode the Criminal Mind, is available now. And Paul's best-selling memoir, Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases, is also available now. Follow Barry Bones and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase Barry Bones merch.